0: Welcome back to Breast Cancer Update. Dr. Bill Wood has had a long-standing leadership role in breast cancer surgery and is giving the keynote address at the upcoming NCI Conference on Neoadjuvant Therapy of Breast Cancer. I met with Dr. Wood to pick his brain about some of the current controversies in the field, and he began our conversation by commenting on a particularly vexing issue related to sentinel node surgery. One question continues
1: to be the necessity for Doing an axillary dissection when sentinel nodes are minimally positive, and there are clearly as many answers to that as you ask people. That until we have better data, it's certainly hard not to do a dissection if there's a macro metastasis. On the other hand, most of us are unwilling to do a dissection for a micro metastasis, except in the youngest person where we think the biology of the primary suggests more metastasis than we found, then I think most of us would dissect a micrometastasis to make sure we weren't missing something.
0: And I guess we're not going to ever have an answer from the Z11 trial that tried to look at that. It
1: did, and its numbers probably won't give us that answer. The other question that continues to be asked is how much margin to take around a primary. And the data really are very clear that positive margins are not good. The data on close margins are increasingly strong, that with modern radiation oncology, they probably aren't very important. What's your own practice? I try for a three millimeter margin. I don't try for a centimeter. And if I am less than a millimeter, millimeter and a half, in a younger patient, I will consider strongly re-excising. But in an older patient with a boost, I don't worry about it at all. And it's probably my neurotic behavior rather than facts that makes me aggressive in the younger patient.
0: What about partial breast irradiation? Are you utilizing that? I'm not
1: utilizing that if you mean accelerated partial breast radiation with a mammocyte or something like that. We are doing IMRT, which is really focal partial breast radiation, but it's really a very different species in my mind. The partial breast radiation is a very interesting concept It has enormous applicability around the world and in rural areas. I don't practice in either of those settings. And the wonderful thing about fractionated radiation, with the sort of quality that we enjoy in urban America, people really just have a wonderful result afterward. Are you talking about delivering it over five days? Yes or even fewer, two or three days with mammocytes.
0: But I mean, in terms of the
1: IMRT at your place? Oh, no, the IMRT is given typically in four weeks, cutting
0: off a little bit, but not much. So it's not the kind of PBI that, for example, is being looked at in the NSVP study? No, it's not. And those studies worry me
1: because larger fractions typically have produced fibrosis in normal tissue and microvascular changes that contribute to that fibrosis in time. That fibrosis is in some patients seen within the first few years, but in most patients is a very late finding. So I think we'll have wonderful news from the trials long before they will get to the negative phase, if there is one. So I'm not enthusiastic about my patients having it. I'm also, of course, and I am quick to say this is the bias of anyone in a tertiary quaternary center, We see people who've had mammocyte too close to the skin and the complications and problems of that. But that's really not used as it should be used ideally, I think.
0: Anything new in terms of skin-sparing mastectomy?
1: We just reported a huge series at Southern Surgical, and it continues to be true that it appears to produce superb results cosmetically, and it does not have a higher failure rate. I think we learned two things from that study, though. If there is a close superficial margin, and we only had about 13 such patients, but we had about five failures in that group, these are usually women who have generous breasts, are young, and have almost no subcutaneous tissue. And I would today radiate those women if we have a margin that's positive superficially you can't reexcise it unless you want to convert them to removing the skin and it's always problematic as to exactly where it was anyway in that circumstance so i would radiate those women today particularly the young ones it was the young women with a positive anterior margin that were a problem can you talk about what your technique is and caveats about the procedure my technique is a circumareolar incision fully around the areola and then a full mastectomy plus or minus axillary dissection done through that. If the breast is very stiff, you sometimes need to tee that out with a, about a two centimeter racket handle to deliver the specimen, which is very frustrating after you've labored so carefully to <laughs> not enlarge the incision and then finally at the end you have to do it to deliver it. But usually you can deliver it through a circumareolar incision. It's dilatable enough after you do the incision. No special techniques other than just being careful to maintain the plane. There's a little white superficial fascia that is mostly present as a guide. There are areas where you won't find it or it seems to be absent. But if you follow that, you'll have subcutaneous tissue above, and the breast is all nicely contained within that.
0: Any other questions or issues you think surgeons
1: have? Many of their questions have to do with are there patients who can avoid being referred for chemotherapy. And that continues to be fascinating. One group I believe do not need chemotherapy are the group whose tumors are so favorable. Their prognosis is really excellent. Our series of 282 one centimeter or smaller node negative patients at Emory had a 1% failure rate systemically at 10 years, which was identically 98.7% tumor-free at 10 years, exactly the same as the European series seven years earlier from exactly the same stage of tumor. So if you have a 1% failure rate at 10 years, it's very hard to make a big improvement on that with adjuvant chemotherapy. So the one group are really favorable prognosis patients. The second group are those who are node negative, hormone receptor positive, and have a low score on the oncotype assay. I think at present it's apparent that that really low score, and we're pretty good at guessing who they'll be too, but confirming that with the oncotype assay, that group I think can safely be watched. How do you incorporate the oncotype into your practice and how do you decide whether to order it? If a woman has a tumor that is more than grade 1 and more than a centimeter, or grade 1 and more than 2 centimeters, I think she should consider seriously chemotherapy. And so that group I would like to see have an oncotype assay, because three quarters of them will not be in the group that in the B20 series benefited from chemotherapy. So it really knocks out a big segment that appear not to benefit it. Now, clearly we're not happy that that's definitive in an absolute sense. So the group that have a really low recurrence score, which is half of them, I'm very happy not having treated. The others we're putting into Taylor X, and very excited about finding out exactly where that borderline between the high-risk group, all of whom should be treated, and the low-risk group who don't need treatment, lies.
0: That Taylor-Rx study is really interesting in that, of course, the patients with high recurrence scores go ahead and get the chemotherapy, but it's the intermediate ones that are randomized between chemo and no treatment. It's been a while since we've done that in breast cancer. How do you think that's going to sit with patients and docs? It seems to be taking off very well. It really does. You're absolutely
1: right. That's a tough randomization in any circumstance. But the fact that it's being made on data rather than on a finger in the air, and the fact that people have a chance to think about it, agree to it, and then see what their score comes back, seems to be going quite well. I like the fact that it's a very different study than we're doing in BIG where the Mind trial compares the adjuvant online prognostic pattern with the 70 gene pattern from the Netherlands. And if they're concordant, they're treated according to what the two recommend. If they're discordant, they're randomized as in the American study. So I think they're going to be wonderful and complementary over the next five or 10 years.
0: The other side of the oncotype, too, is finding the patient who has a high recurrence score where, you know, maybe you're not that enthusiastic before you see that to give chemotherapy, maybe an older patient. Have you had patients like that where it's been the oncotype that sort of led the patient and oncologist to use chemotherapy? Yes, exactly right. We have.
1: I think it's very helpful. They now have data on it 20,000 women, and as they continue to follow those data, it's going to be fascinating.
0: Yeah, Steve Schack has shown me some of these pictures he has of the sort of clustering of thing, but it kind of is consistent with what we've been thinking about, the ER positive, the HER2 positive, and the triple negative. It is. It seems like we're moving in the direction of splitting up breast cancer in that way. We are, and it's probably a naive split. I suspect in uh,
1: another five years we'll look back and smile, and yet it's clearly a big step forward
0: over where we've been, pretending that it was a bushel of mixed berries. And, of course, that also leads into the issue of HER2 and adjuvant trastuzumab, and you were talking about you know, the way you approach the node-negative patient, but then again, the node-negative HER2-positive situation is a little bit different. Can you talk about that? Yes. Trastuzumab clearly is of great benefit in all of these people who
1: overexpress HER2, and the question comes, what is the risk of a node-negative patient by size? And I think we can do fairly, a fairly good job at predicting that on the basis of our prior experience. So a person who has any real risk, much over two centimeters and is HER2 positive, I think definitely is a candidate for trastuzumab. The question is, how much chemotherapy should they get in addition to trastuzumab? And that clearly is going to be a question, don't you believe,
0: over the next few years to sort out? Yeah, there's a lot of interest in that. And I think Dennis Lehman even talked about that in his presentation. Do we need anthracyclines? And then the question I think Ken Osborne brought up is, do we even need chemotherapy? Absolutely. I guess that sort of reflects the whole concept of targeted therapy that we seem to be moving towards in breast cancer.
1: We are. It's exciting to begin to tailor therapy. We've talked about it for years and haven't been able to do much other than use uh, hormone treatments for people who are ER positive. But when we have someone who's dramatically hormone receptor positive, do we have a clear gain from chemotherapy? The answer from the overview is yes, there's a clear additional gain. But it's going to be interesting now to
0: try and really refine that as we have better and better therapies. You know, as we move towards more targeted therapy, it's going to be more and more important to accurately measure the targets. There's been a lot of concern about measuring her too, as well as ER. Where are we right now, and how can a surgeon in practice feel comfortable that the patient's going to have an accurate assay? That's a scary question because he can't. If you're fortunate
1: enough to practice in a quaternary center that runs controls all week long, you can be quite confident. Otherwise, there's a 20% central lab correction rate on peripheral values. One of the things that is promising is that Oncotype appears to be able to give us these data very, very precisely because of central controls, and they will begin, I'm told, next year reporting ER and PR values on the basis of the genomic assay, and probably HER2 very shortly thereafter, so that it may be that that would be a nice correction to see if that reinforced the local value or called it into question?
0: Yeah, an oncologist sent me a case recently that was really scary, patient with a 0.4 centimeter node negative tumor that was ER positive, 80% ER positive out of a major lab. And he sent the tumor for Oncotype, and the Oncotype pathologist called back and said, hey, this is not ER positive. And he sent it to Craig Allred. And he found it also was clearly an ER ER-negative tumor, and the patient now is on chemotherapy. We've thought a lot about this question of false negative results, but here was a false positive. It's going to take a few years to sort this
1: out, particularly that case you just mentioned. In our experience, we did not have a single failure in that group, less than a centimeter, ER ER-negative, not one. Will Oncotype tell us that there are some of those who need to be treated? They believe so from the NSABP data, but of course, most of the NSABP data sizes were on the gross rather than microscopic, so hard to know how to interpret that. But I think it's very hard to know what to do with a woman such as that. Does she really have only a 1% risk at 10 years? Or if she has a high oncotype score, or if she has a HER2 overexpressing node negative tumor, is that not true? Or if she's a triple negative, is that not true? We just don't have big enough numbers to be able to say with confidence what those boundaries are.
0: Where do you think things are heading in terms of the use of adjuvant endocrine therapy, and particularly the question of duration? It seems like now, at this point, we've kind of shifted over in postmenopausal women towards aromatase inhibitors, but now there's the question of for how long, and what about delayed use of aromatase inhibitors? What are your thoughts about that? It looks as though five years is very important, even with the aromatase inhibitors. Is longer than that better? I don't know. The other issue in terms of duration of therapy that really I think a lot of it has come out of the overview in MA17 is the more awareness of the long-term risk of relapse, particularly in patients with ER ER-positive tumors. Yes, it was a rather frightening finding that the
1: ER ER-negative patient has a high risk over the next three to five years particularly, which we can affect fairly dramatically with chemotherapy but past that has really quite a good plateau going on out 15 plus years, whereas the hormone receptor positive patient has a lower risk rate, but that risk rate goes out big time to eight to 12 years and then does begin to get to a plateau, but it certainly doesn't plateau as quickly as the risk does in the ER negative. And in fact, the plateau in the early breast cancer trialist data suggests that the ultimate failure rate may be higher in the ER positive patient than it is in the air negative patient, which is
0: extremely counterintuitive. I guess on the upside is the fact that it looks like interventions can be made down the line. And just today, we saw another presentation from the NSABP B33 study looking at the delayed use of an aromatase inhibitor, in this case, exomestane after five years of tamoxifen. What were your thoughts about that? It was certainly
1: pleasing to see continuing evidence that we can intervene late. There are some women who can't tolerate the AIs for a variety of reasons, as you know. I think we need to be working on that subgroup. And some of them, if they're placed on a steroidal, aromatase uh, inhibitor, seem to do all right, whereas they didn't on a non-steroidal. But I think we have a bit to learn about some of the people who just feel like their brain doesn't work when they're on an AI. One thing for all of us to know was the decline in breast cancer. That was Peter Ravdon's presentation. Peter Ravdon did a lovely job of that. In the SEER data, there's that sharp drop in 2003. If you actually look at the WHO data, it's not very dramatic. There's been a steady and continual decline that's really amazing, now going on almost 15 years. In the U.K., most dramatically, but in the U.S., in Spain, in Austria, in most of the European countries, it's really a 15-year steady and rather precipitous decline and it's hard to know entirely what it's responsible for but the occurrence is also going down a bit and I like Peter's thought I've long felt for medical students and residents one of the exercises that I would have them do was try and come up with a case for Prempro. is it smart to give progesterone which increases the risk of a common cancer to try and prevent a rare cancer if you just did it on a blackboard it never made a lot of sense
0: So do you think that his hypothesis, that it is the drop in use of HRT that's contributing to this, do you buy into that?
1: I do. I don't think it means those women won't get breast cancer, but I think it's delaying the
0: appearance of that and perhaps delaying the progression of those. What are your thoughts about the use of unopposed estrogen, for example, on women who have had a hysterectomy?
1: I'm in favor of it as long as the dose is kept low. 0.625 of Premarin has not been shown in any cohort study to be associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. If we give it as a transdermal patch, there seems to be much less risk of the venous thrombosis complications. For a woman who has not had a hysterectomy and is really troubled by menopausal symptoms, I think a progesterone IUD changed at five years is a very reasonable way to do this without exposing the woman to systemic progesterone.
0: Where do you think things are going to be heading in terms of breast cancer surgery? Any frontiers out there that we're about to cross? Two answers to that.
1: First of all, I think that neoadjuvant chemotherapy is the way breast cancer treatment should be given for anyone who we're fairly confident will need chemotherapy. We gain two enormous benefits. Eighty to ninety percent of the women, depending on the regimen we're using, will have greater than a 50 percent diminution in mean diameter of the tumor so that the cosmesis gained is just dramatically better secondly by using neoadjuvant chemotherapy we identify that group who does not respond to our best chemotherapy and of course we don't know what to do with those people today but it enables us to ask the question what is the optimal treatment for the apparently resistant patient which i believe to be one of the major questions facing us now secondly The use of techniques other than surgical excision continues to fascinate surgeons, cryotherapy or using a variety of ways to induce heat energy. Now, I'm worried about heat energy because heat energy causes fat necrosis, which causes fibrosis and calcifications. And I think if I attempted to present this to a patient And I were naive in my presentation and said, I'd like to excise your tumor and microwave it till it's dead and put it back in as a filler in your breast. I think she would wonder if I should be committed. But if we (laughs) do it with a (laughs) probe, somehow this is taken to be a clever thing. It doesn't resonate to me. It sounds like the electric razor, which is a technological marvel, which does almost as well as a cheap plastic razor and shaving your face. So I really don't quite get that. But with cryotherapy, it appears that you do get the same benefit with a double freeze and you don't get fat necrosis, calcifications, or those other problems. So that may be a very reasonable thing. One of the major problems with treating all solid tumors is that we can only detect them macroscopically. We can feel the lump, we can visualize the density, We really don't know the size or shape of the tumor microscopically until we attempt our excision and find that microscopically it wandered off another three centimeters to the side we hadn't imagined. So an enormous corrective to our present imaging is the pathology of excision. And in our institution, we're working on nanotyping and nanoimaging, and it's very exciting. And I think that within the next few years, we may well be able to image the actual genomic extent of a tumor rather than just the present density finding. But until that time, if we freeze or cook what we believe to be the extent of tumor on a little margin, there's going to be a significant number of times that we're wrong. And it doesn't seem to me terribly smart to save that. I think these are interesting studies and I applaud those who wish to pursue them. It doesn't seem to me to be chasing the area of great concern in breast cancer to me.
0: Nanotyping? What is that? We're using nano,
1: little nanoparticles which track with small molecules to the tumor. And then we can flag them with iron particles. We can flag them with a variety of things to make them imageable. And we can also tag on chemotherapeutic agents. It's a lot of very exciting work going on, I believe. NIH has now funded eight centers of nanotechnology excellence, and Emory is fortunate to be one of those, and several of our projects are in breast cancer. They are techniques that appear very, very exciting. I'm sure they will be a bit more difficult than they look in their earliest iterations, but it's quite an exciting field.
0: That's fascinating. You mentioned the issue about neoadjuvant therapy. So how do you approach a patient who has their tumor intact when they see you in terms of making a decision about whether to refer the patient to an oncologist? The
1: routine for me with anyone other than a tiny tumor is a core biopsy, placing a clip, because almost 30% of them now will have a complete CR, and then doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy. We have not yet done the randomized trial of sentinel node biopsy before or after neoadjuvant, which I believe we need to do at some point. So we're very concerned to get the best staging we can, and we do that. And then after neoadjuvant therapy, we do the excision under local anesthesia as an outpatient with IV sedation if the patient desires it.
0: What about the issue of neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, particularly aromatase inhibitors? That's used a lot more in Europe than it is in the United States. Yes. I grew up with a medical oncologist, Dr. Rita
1: Kelly, who was one of the early medical oncologists interested in breast cancer back in the 50s and 60s. She and Jean Kennedy and a few others were doing wonderful work. And she would send me patients whom she would wish me to biopsy, and then she would treat with hormonal manipulation before we had receptors and shrink these often large tumors in older women down to a little nubbin that she would then have me excise. And I was her faithful surgical technician at that point. And I was impressed at how well they did. And I've continued to do that and use neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. I have tended to use it in the past on the older patient, obviously with a hormone receptor positive tumor. Now with AIs, the ability to do smaller tumors it probably is going to be just as effective as chemotherapy. I'm of the impression that it's a bit longer lasting in its effect
0: than chemotherapy is. And are you doing that mainly in patients who you want to convert to be breast conserving? No. If they're going to have breast conservation but it would
1: leave a cosmetic defect, it's still appealing to me to shrink it down. I think there is sufficient data from the NSABP trial in terms of chemotherapy to know that there's no downside to gaining that chemo benefit. We are still gathering those data in the present studies on hormone therapy.
0: One of the issues that's come up, and Mike Dixon has talked about this, is the way the tumors shrink when you give them chemotherapy versus hormonal therapy. He feels that somehow when you give hormonal therapy, it sort of collapses in more, and chemotherapy maybe stays more diffuse and difficult to figure out what kind of surgery to do. Is that your take also?
1: No, I don't have that impression. Lobular carcinomas do tend to do that. They go away sort of like becoming Swiss cheese and that sort of thing, so you can't get as great a tumor reduction in my experience with invasive lobular cancers, is as you do with invasive ductal carcinoma. But the majority, the great majority of invasive ductal carcinomas treated with hormone therapy or chemotherapy shrink a bit like an onion that you're peeling. But certainly there are some that leave little satellites all about. question comes, will radiation control those? How big are those satellites? And can you believe the MR imaging?
0: We've been talking about neoadjuvant therapy and it seems like the interest in that is increasing with time, and the NSAVP is now just launching their study looking at three different types of chemotherapy, plus or minus the anti-VEGF agent bevacizumab, and they're f- focusing really on what's going on inside the tumor, pathologic complete response, tissue correlates. Is this the wave of the future in terms of breast cancer research?
1: I believe it is. The breast cancer intergroup has similar studies that are opening.
0: You know, I don't know if you want to talk about it or not, but you mentioned that you had surgery you want to talk about what it was like to have surgery as a patient? <laughs> I mean, I talked to Mel Silverstein about this, and it was pretty interesting.
1: As all nurses and doctors have observed, it is much better to care for people who are having surgery than to have the surgery oneself. I was felt very blessed in that I had no anxiety at all going into the surgery. I just had hundreds of people praying for me, and I really felt absolutely calm about that. So I was surprised at how crummy I felt afterwards. <laughs> With modern anesthesia, pain isn't really an issue. That's all taken care of very well. What was surprising was that it's quite a while before your GI tract accepts the newly revised plan that is quite different than the one that the good Lord had planned for it originally. And I had really not appreciated the months that it takes before one's GI tract totally behaves, My patients had explained this to me over the years, and I'm afraid I had not really taken it in. I'd heard them. I'd been sympathetic. But it's a very different thing when it's your own GI tract that rebels at every meal for months.